Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Garrison. Uh, I'm the president and CEO of Ubiquity University, and we are delighted, in fact, privileged to be offering this course with Ken Wilbur and his associates on integral theory and practice uh, based on his book, A Brief History of, of Everything. And so in the first instance, I just want to thank Urian Komp and, and your team, Urian. We've had a splendid uh, time uh, working together, and it's our hope that this partnership between Ubiquity University and the Intelligent Optimist will start with this course and continue on into the future because there's a significant amount of overlap in our basic philosophical positions and, and the kind of communications that we're putting out uh, to the world, you in the world of journalism and ubiquity in the world of, of education. I wanted to just say one quick word about ubiquity um, as a way of uh, positioning this course and positioning our relationship with Ken Wilbur. Uh, Ken uh, is our inaugural chancellor uh, for the university. Uh, we believe that his breakthroughs and in integral thinking and practice are not only seminal in terms of the current discussions in philosophy um, and in intellectual affairs, uh, but that, in fact, uh, they are of such an inordinate importance because we believe they set the grounding for philosophical and metaphysical um, discussion for the future. And we say that for a very specific reason. Ubiquity is seeking to reinvent education as we know it. Uh, and in this regard, um, I want to just draw to everybody's attention Urian's article, Revenge of the Spirit, in the last edition of The Intelligent Optimist, which was not only brilliantly concise, but it really laid out the challenges for all of us as we move into the future around the exploration of consciousness and our inner world. And we have taken this very, very seriously. And we are doing so in the spirit of the Renaissance. You know, what, what ignited the Renaissance was its reform of education, not initially its expression of art. And it was so dramatically transformational because the Florentines literally shifted the basis of education away from the church and the Bible to the Greco-Roman civilization and the primacy of reason and the scientific method. Ubiquity seeks to do the same thing with an equally seismic shift in the basis of education away from the Greco-Roman um, civilizational model and the primacy of reason and the scientific method to a living universe, to a notion that everything that is is infused with consciousness, with intentionality, uh, and that we are in a, a vibrantly alive world. Whereas Urian uh, says in his article, we are embarking on a whole new era in human history, which is going to be putting at the forefront the exploration of consciousness and, and our interiors with equal 
uh, intensity and specificity as we've exercised during the last several centuries during the uh, enlightenment on understanding the external world. There's no one that I know of that more fully appreciates the um, parity and the interconnectivity between interiors and exteriors than Ken Wilber. And that's why as we launch our university and we're seeking to recreate education on a whole new basis, we're having as our um, foundation of the university integral theory and practice. And that's why Ken is our inaugural chancellor that's why we have positioned this particular course now because uh, Ubiquity will be launching uh, this month. And we are very, very uh, uh, grateful, as I indicated earlier, that we're doing this in a partnership with Intelligent Optimus because we believe that if you look in the, into the future in the way that we will be describing to you over the next six weeks in this teleseminar, um, uh, intelligent optimism is inherent uh, in an integral few view of existence itself and certainly the human uh, journey. So it's in this spirit and with a great and deep friendship um, with Ken that I would like to introduce all of you to Ken Wilbur and his team. And then he'll be making a presentation and then Yurian will be taking over the moderation of the discussion and then bringing the uh, phone call to a close. So thank you, Yurian, and welcome, Ken Wilbur. Well, hi, uh, Jim. This is Ken. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. I think <clears throat> those of us uh, associated with Ubiquity and 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 now uh, our very friendly relationship with with the uh, Intelligent Optimist are uh, really look at this as as um, not only a time of of great difficulties, and we're all aware of of, of the global problems. On economic markets and terrorism and and global warming and so on, but there are also reasons to be really deeply optimistic about certain other trends that are occurring, and these are often trends that aren't tracked as commonly or as often as trends in the exterior world, and it's the trends in the exterior world that that, that are looking so problematic. But if you look at trends on the interior world and consciousness and culture, uh, you see a somewhat different story with some very, very exciting um, events and processes and transformations uh, occurring. And, and these aren't just theories. We, we can actually measure these. The actual um, techniques and metrics that we can follow the development of human consciousness. And what it appears is that um, if you look at the course of human history, there have been about five or six major human transformations. And if you look at them um, from an exterior point of view, and by the way, one of integral theory's uh, um, tenets is that every event can be looked at from both an interior and an exterior point of view, 
and from an individual and a collective point of view. And if you put those together, that gives us four fundamental dimensions that all phenomena have. is the inside of, uh, or the interior of an individual that's marked by an I space. There's the inside or interior of a collective. We all belong to several different groups or different we spaces. And then there's the exterior. There's the exterior of the individual. I can look at my organism not only from within as an I that has thoughts and emotions and feelings and so on, but I, I can also look at it in an exterior, objective, sort of scientific view. And if I do that, I don't see thoughts and feelings and emotions. I see neurosynapses and dopamine and serotonin and, and two lungs and two kidneys and one heart and so on. The standard sort of scientific medical view of, of, of the human organism. And we can then also, these groups that we belong to, can not only look at them from, from within, as a we space and our shared values and our shared worldview and our shared ethics and so on. But we can look at them from without, uh, also in kind of an exterior objectifying, quote, scientific way. And then we would track things like birth rates and amounts of money and suicide rates and numbers of families and average number of cars that each family has and so on sort of standard positivistic sociology types of approaches. And the point about integral theory is that no one of those perspectives alone covers the whole story. That we actually have to include all four of those perspectives if we're going to get a more complete view of what's actually going on. And yet if you look at most human education today and most human uh, uh, intellectual disciplines. You can take the study of consciousness, for example, and you can look in, in uh, uh, Journal of Consciousness Studies, and you'll find about half the articles maintaining that consciousness can only be understood from a third-person, objective, exterior, scientific point of view. So consciousness is to be understood as uh, the product of a triune brain and the functioning of that brain. But the other half of the articles say, well, wait, the only way we know about a brain is through our own immediate direct experience. And the idea of a brain itself is, is a thought or a hypothesis that we come up with, and that's an interior experience. What's really re real is interior consciousness. And there's a constant conflict, and we maintain that both of those are true but partial. Both of those have some very, very important truths. And so that right there is the first of many ways in which you can see that education is going to have to fundamentally shift to reflect a truly whole, living, vibrant universe and not a universe where merely one of these four dimensions or one of these quadrants is taken to be real. And all the others are dismissed as illusion or fallacies or infantile or loopy or just plain wrong. And as I was saying, if we look at the number of transformations, fundamental transformations in, in, in human awareness, 
and in human types of society and, and types of, of existence, we find about five or six major transformations. If we look at the exterior of human societies, then we find that human beings have gone from foraging, or so-called hunting and gathering, to horticulture, which is agriculture done with a simple digging stick or hoe, to agrarian, which is agriculture done with a heavy animal-drawn plow, to industrial, to informational, which is, which is where we stand today. And each of those exteriors has an interior worldview. And these arise and go together. And one of the first people to track the development of these worldviews was the uh, pioneering genius Gene Gebser. <clears throat> and to paraphrase his names for these evolving worldviews, they went from archaic or instinctual to magic or egocentric, to mythic or traditional values, to rational or modern values, to pluralistic or postmodern. And then Gebser, now mo there, there are several dozen psychological developmental models that have come into being in over the last hundred years or so. And all of them um, are variations on those levels of development with one uh, important addition. And that is we have come to understand in the past few decades, and this is another way that education will be changing and needs to change and ubiquity is going to help pioneer that. We found that human beings don't have just one type of intelligence. We're used to if you say how intelligent is somebody, we think immediately of IQ, intellectual intelligence. But as made popular by Howard Gardner, um, a, a, a brilliant Harvard developmental psychologist, human beings have, um, he postulated seven, others have postulated up to a dozen different intelligences. So in addition to intellectual IQ or intellectual intelligence, we have emotional intelligence, we have an ethical intelligence, we have a mathematical intelligence, we have a kinesthetic intelligence, we have an interpersonal intelligence, we have an intrapersonal intelligence, we have a spiritual intelligence. And clearly, in order to be intelligent, one has to have some sort of exposure and some sort of education in how to function with all of those intelligences. And what we find is that as different as those intelligences are, and they can't be confused and they can't be equated, and you can, you can be very highly developed in some of these intelligences and mediumly developed in others, and very poorly developed in yet others. As different as they are, they all move through the same basic levels of consciousness, the same basic levels of development, one version of which we gave as archaic to magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic. Now, 
about three decades ago, um, following in the footsteps of Abe Maslow, who found that standard human motivation goes through these basic levels of development, and he referred to them as physiological needs, safety needs, belongingness needs, self-esteem needs, and self-actualization needs. And then he found a leap to what he called self-transcendent needs. Claire Grace found uh, the same type of leap at the upper dimensions, namely the first five or six stages of development, which um, Gravesians generally refer to as, as first tier, uh, because they are like Maslow's lower needs. They're driven by deficiency, by scarcity, by lack. I lack food. I need it. I get it. I feel better for a while. I start to get hungry again. I need food. I get it. I feel better, and so on. And all of the early levels and, and stages of development are, are, are driven by deficiency needs. And Claire Grace found another important factor that marked all of these first-tier levels, up to and including the pluralistic stage, which is where we're at essentially today, although everybody's born at square one. So there are still people that are at magic levels, and there are still people at mythic levels, and there are still people at rational levels, and there's people at pluralistic so it's a percentage game, essentially. Um, but what Grace found about all of those is they all had one thing in common. They all felt that their values and their truths were the only values and the only truths that were really true and really valuable. All the others, again, were mistaken or infantile or crazy or just flat out wrong. And then Graves found in a small percent of the population what he called a momentous leap in meaning, which was that approximately the upper 5% of the population moved into an entirely different set of values and needs and worldviews and motivations, which generally referred to as second tier. And this is essentially similar to Maslow's leap from deficiency needs to what he called being needs. And what Graves found marked these second-tier structures or levels is that unlike first-tier, second-tier believes that there's some sort of truth or value in all of the previous levels. So it is literally the first stage in human history where all other worldviews are honored and respected and recognized as having some type of important truth that needs to be incorporated in an overall or, or, or complete worldview. At the very least, what we find is that these earlier stages become the ingredients for later stages of development. So magic becomes an ingredient of, of mythic, and mythic in turn becomes a part of an ingredient of rational, and rational becomes an ingredient of pluralistic, and all of those become ingredients of, of integral. So just like virtually all evolutionary processes in the universe, uh, 
each stage, each succeeding stage is more complex. It transcends the previous stage, but includes its essentials. So this is just like going from atoms, for example, to molecules, from molecules to cells, from cells to one-celled organisms, from one-celled organisms to multi-celled organisms. Each of those stages include the previous stage and then add something new. This addition of integral stages of development is only a few decades old. Now, we see early pioneering integral thinkers in virtually every culture, uh, and many of, of what we recognize as the great philosophers and great psychologists, whether it's Plotinus in the West or Shankara in, in the East, have been integrally uh, informed and motivated. But it's never been more than a tenth of 1% of the population. And now, as I say, over the past three decades or so, the percentage of the population at integral stages of development has grown to about 5%. And many developmentalists see this 5% becoming 10% within a decade. And something rather peculiar happens when the leading edge of evolution in human society reaches about 10% of the population. In a bit of an overworked term, but one which definitely applies here, at about 10%, the entire culture reaches a tipping point. And so when, for example, the tipping point moved from mythic, which was the standard traditional fundamentalist religious view of, let's say, the Middle Ages, to rational, which started in the Renaissance and, and flowered in the Enlightenment. And when it's used in this way, it doesn't just mean abstract and dry and desiccated. It means capacity to take a third-person perspective, a capacity to step back and take a critical view, a capacity to examine evidence and not just rely on myths that are given to you, and in general, a capacity to discover new truths and subject it to, to tests and to experiments. And so the... Uh, the whole rational stage um, had a profound impact. And among other things, within a 100-year period, the rational stage of development was the first stage in all of history to completely outlaw and eliminate slavery. No societal type prior to modern rationality had eliminated slavery not foraging, not horticultural, not agrarian. Uh, they were all had some degrees of, of slavery. And yet that changed dramatically with, with the emergence of, of, the, of the rational stage, the rational level of consciousness. And so, when a, but only that started to happen when only 10% of the population had actually reached rational. And when 10% reached that stage, we had the French and American revolutions, which, in a sense, got rid of monarchy and aristocracy as governing systems and introduced representative democracy. We had the um, 
rise of the um, beginning of the feminist movements. Um, we had um, the uh, widespread um, introduction of an understanding of universal rights of humankind. And this, of course, would, would flower eventually into, again, freeing the slaves, uh, giving women the vote, <coughs> and so on. And it, it's even all of those things happened, even though only 10% of the population was at a level that actually embraced those values. Somehow the whole culture became permeated and saturated with those values when 10% of the leading edge reached that. We saw the same thing happen in the 60s when primarily there was, the, for the first time in history, the emergence of the pluralistic or postmodern or cultural creative stage of development. And in 1959, less than 3% of the population was it pluralistic. In 1979, the most frequently quoted author in academia was Jacques Derrida. And so we saw when the population hit 10%, we started to see the rise of the civil rights movement. We saw the widespread um, professional and personal adoption of, of feminism. We saw the first genuine widespread rise of environmentalism and the um, ecology movements. Um, workers' rights, uh, rights for uh, the disabled. And all of this was happening even though not much more than about 10% of the population was at a stage that actually embraced those values. But somehow those values seeped through the whole culture and laws began being passed that reflected those new values. Now, when we expect to see the same thing happen as the integral stage or second tier moves from 5% and itself hits 10% and we reach that turning point, which as I say could happen according to many developmentalists as soon as, as, as a decade or so. And that would indeed change everything. Every human culture to date has been built on a first-tier value that thought all other values were wrong. And that means every human culture to date has been built with a deep-seated conflict and aggression and disagreement at its heart. And no way to get around that and find a fundamental harmony and tolerance, <clears throat> not only between cultures, but among members of the same culture. Because remember, everybody in any given culture is at a different stage or level of development. And so there's an enormous amount of conflict and disharmony and disagreement within cultures just due to the fact that people are at different stages of, of, of consciousness development, in addition to all, all the other causes. But that's a primary and fundamental and deep-seated uh, cause. And so never in human history have we had a culture that had a worldview 
that was literally all-inclusive and that literally felt that there's, in a sense, everybody's right. There's some degree of truth in every major system that has been advanced um, in pre-modern times, modern times, and post-modern times. And what has never happened is any sort of educational system that took all of that into account or any sort of culture that took that into account. But as we start to move into this global, integral, worldwide transformation, these types of understandings, these types of values, and the demand for inclusive and comprehensive and embracing and tolerant and caring cultures is going to become more and more and more widespread. And, of course, what we at Ubiquity uh, want to do is to help educate individuals for a world that is going to be that big, that comprehensive, that embracing. And it goes without saying that that means that this includes both scientific and religious viewpoints. There are some very straightforward ways to integrate the essentials of science and the essentials of spirituality. And these become simply just obvious to individuals that develop to these integral stages of, of consciousness. Because at those integral stages, consciousness has the cognitive power to see holes and see unities and see connections everywhere. The universe becomes alive. The universe becomes interconnected. The universe becomes ecological, if you will. Um, and not in any reductionistic sense that everything is reduced to biological systems. Uh, human values, human needs, human motivations all become interwoven as part of a larger, greater wholeness. And we are invited to be witness to that wholeness. And on the cognitive side, seeing that wholeness leads on, on, on the emotional side to feelings of, of care and feelings of, of compassion and feelings of not just a mutual tolerance, which is, oh, yeah, I, I understand that you disagree with me and, 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 and I disagree with you, but I'll you know, agree to respect you and, and, and we can just go our separate ways and, and, and treat each other with dignity. It's much more, <clears throat> I think you have some truth. And I would like to know what that truth is, possibly to incorporate it into my life. And so it's much more than just a sort of passive tolerance. It's an active embrace of various worldviews, all looking for the partial truths that each of them contain, and then finding ways to weave those truths together into a holistic system. And so that's certainly what integral theory and some other um, 
post-postmodern theories are attempting to do is not to decide which view is right and which view is wrong, which is sort of an old first-tier approach, but how can they all be essentially right? How can there be truths from all of these systems that have something important to tell us? As we sometimes put it, no mind can produce 100% error, or nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. And so we have before us this enormous smorgasbord of um, partial truths that are waiting to be woven together, not just cognitively, but also in our own emotions and ethics and morals, and interwoven in a way that shows us the deep, deep connections, in addition to the important differences, which are not denied, but the deep, deep connections that we all share as human beings living on this small planet. And the remarkable thing is, once you sort of get the sense of an integral wholeness and the importance of um, drawing on, on all disciplines and having multidisciplinary approaches and transdisciplinary approaches to virtually any problem, <clears throat> and that certainly includes things like global warming. And one of the reasons that we're having problems getting people to adopt procedures to help with global warming is that most of the people working on it are coming at it from just one or at most two levels of development, whereas the rest of the world, some 80% of the world, are at other levels of development. And so they're not speaking to everybody in a language that connects with them. And so they're not talking to individuals at magic levels or individual at mythic levels or even individual at, at integral levels. They're talking at best individuals at a rational level and often individuals at a pluralistic level. But unfortunately, about 70% of the world's population is at mythic or lower levels. And so it, it, it's literally, as Robert Keegan, a developmentalist at Harvard, puts it, um, in over our heads. Some of these truths that we just assume are plainly evident to everybody aren't evident to people that aren't at a rational level. This is why it's so common, for example, for fundamentalists of any religion bless them, but they tend to believe in the mythic truths of a particular book, say the Bible, and they take those mythic truths to be literally true. Moses really did part the Red Sea, God really did rain locusts down on the Egyptians, uh, Moses really did turn his staff into a serpent, Christ really was born from a biological virgin, and so on and so on and so on. Now, at that particular stage of development, myth forms a very important function. And during the whole mythic era of human history, it was extremely important because for the first time, separate and individual tribes 
that could only be related biologically by kinship lineage. So I could only be I could only know how to relate to you if you were somehow in my extended family. If I met a tribe that wasn't in my extended family, then I couldn't relate to them. And often warfare or fighting was the result. But with mythology, both tribes could be descended from the same god and therefore could form a larger union based on that commonality. And so the 12 tribes of Israel, for example, came together under one god, Yahweh. So that mythic worldview turned out to be a, a, a great evolutionary advance for its time. And every child today, starting at around age five or six, and going until early adolescence, has that mythic worldview. And so if you want to communicate with an individual at that level of development at all, you have to speak in the language that addresses that worldview. If you come in with, you know, pluralistic reasons, we're all humans and everybody deserves dignity <clears throat> and... Um, you know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and so on. It's right over their heads. Um, as I said, bless them. But um, it's, it's, there are higher stages of development awaiting all of us, really. And I sometimes say this is an elitism, but it's an elitism to, to which all are invited. These are stages of development that are inherent in every human being. And so one of our goals in education is to educate across all of these levels of consciousness, through all those developmental levels, and include all of the different developmental lines or multiple intelligences. And that is covering just the interior of the individual, the so-called upper left quadrant when we draw this inside and outside of an individual and collective on a sheet of paper, it makes four boxes. <clears throat> and so we sometimes refer to the upper left and the upper right and lower left and lower right and so on. But so in addition to the upper left, which, by the way, is one of the quadrants most ignored by every educational system in the world today, which focuses instead on the upper right, the exterior of the individual, and the scientific worldview, and includes things like atoms, molecules, cells, organisms, a study of brain neurochemistry, um, evolution, in a considered in, in a reductionistic fashion, where there is no creativity inherent in evolution. There's no spirit inherent in evolution. There is no livingness inherent in evolution. It's just chance, mutations, and natural selection, which increasingly science itself realizes um, could never get us past frisky dirt in the evolutionary sequence. And that, and that the whole evolutionary process is, is the opposite of randomness or, or chaos and actually drives towards higher levels of self-organization and higher levels of complexity and higher levels of consciousness. 
and that's an inherent drive in the living universe itself. And to the extent that people get in touch with their own living creativity, they're in touch with the living creativity of the entire cosmos. They're in touch with, with spirit. They're in touch with their real self. And all of that gets left out when you look at just the exteriors and leave out the interiors of consciousness and the interiors, the collective interiors of culture. But that indeed is what most educational systems do. And when you focus just on the exterior, there really is no reason for a, a positive hope in the universe. It's, it's really just entropy and everything's running down. And what we've managed to get in terms of um, products of creativity and great beauty and great goodness is just the sheerest luck. And um, if you believe that, then uh, clinical depression is never very far away. And that is the sort of official mainstream view of Western culture, unfortunately, is this scientific materialism. And it focuses on the upper right, the exterior of the individual, and then occasionally some avant-garde scientists believe more in systems or systems theory. And so they're focusing on the exterior of the collective. Systems theory still doesn't take into account the interiors of an individual. So you can look at any textbook in systems theory. You won't find anything on beauty, aesthetic, art, uh, morals, ethics, goodness, uh, or any of those interior values. Uh, so if you ask a systems theorist, for example, to help understand the traffic patterns of downtown Manhattan, then they will watch the traffic, and in the morning they'll see a flux as people go to work and then increase in traffic, <laughs> and then it sort of dies off, and then at lunch there's a bit of an increase, and then around 4 or 5 there's a big increase as people go home. And they can chart all of those exterior movements on flowcharts and give you a very good understanding of just how the traffic is flowing on, on any given day at any given time. What they won't tell you is anything about the interior of any of the drivers in any of those cars. Whether the driver is at a magic or a mythic or a rational or pluralistic or an integral or transpersonal level of development. So all of human motivation for why people are driving those cars is left out of the picture. And of course, if you leave intentionality out, and creativity out, and motivation out, you're going to get a universe that looks dead. And that's exactly what scientific materialism does for us. Now, of course, what the integral approach does is it doesn't say that science is wrong. That would be to fall into the same either-or thinking. It says that that kind of science is true but partial. There are some very important truths that we've learned from reductionistic science. At the very least, it's added probably three decades to the average lifespan of human beings on the planet. 
in just the last three or four hundred years. And it has put a man on the moon, something even our best of poets can't do. So we're not advocating throwing that out. It is, as a matter of fact, one of the major quadrants that we advocate learning about. But we are saying, add the other three quadrants and look at all the extraordinary facts and truths and values that you'll find residing there. And these can be, most of these can be tested. The simple fact they're interior doesn't mean they're private or inaccessible. Uh, most of the great developmental models, for example, have developed uh, testing procedures that can determine very accurately at which particular level an individual is. And so um, it's, it's not that the fact that they're interior uh, means that they're inaccessible or, or that we can't get at them. Even things like mystical awareness or spiritual awakening or enlightenment, even though it, it in a sense, is a, a, an experience that an individual has on their interior, it's still something that can be trained in a community of other practitioners by masters of a practice that will help you awaken to your spiritual dimension and actually experience a Satori or a Kensho or a Metanoia or a transformative practice. The many of these traditions have been passed down hundreds, even thousands of years, which if they were perfectly private and inaccessible, wouldn't be able to be passed from one person to another, let alone through thousands of people over hundreds of years. So the notion that the interiors, the entire left-hand quadrants, are somehow inaccessible or can't be proven is nonsense, utter, absolute nonsense. And so this is, of course, just one of the ways that we integrate science and religion and point to the importance of, of the truths that both of them have to offer us. So it's um, with, with that sort of brief overview, um, perhaps I, I, should, I should pause and see where we'd like to go from here. And also I know we have... Uh, some people want to ask some questions, and of course we want to do our best to accommodate them. But I'd just like to, to finish by saying that um, there is now strong evidence that a significant percentage of the world's population is undergoing a major evolutionary transformation in consciousness to levels of consciousness and awareness that are literally historically unprecedented and their capacity for holistic, inclusive, embracing both and thinking is unprecedented and has literally never existed on this planet in, in history before in any significant fashion, but is looking now to become the leading edge of human growth and development. And the impact of that is, is simply impossible to overestimate. It uh, promises to be profound, widespread, and enormously 
positive in, in almost all of its ramifications. And if we are indeed going to handle the global problems that we're facing now, and most of mankind's problems are global, global finances, global terrorism, global warming, we're going to need correlative global thinking. And that's exactly what's being delivered by these deeper, higher, wider levels of consciousness and awareness. And the sooner we get educational systems that are aware of that and start to educate people on how to live in this interwoven, interconnected, living, creative, spiritual universe, then the sooner we're going to produce the citizens of tomorrow who will actually be inhabiting this extraordinarily new world. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Yes, Julian. Um, nice to hear your voice again, Ken, and thank you for your very thoughtful remarks. Um, thank you, sir. We're going to now open this uh, session for questions from our participants, our audience, and um, here is a question from Barney Wee, and he first says, awesome, thanking you for your remarks, and then says, where are you getting the evidence that these breakthroughs are happening? The breakthroughs, of course, you've talk, been talking about. Yeah. <laughs> there are um, approximately one to two dozen um, major models of psychological development. And most of them actually got started by focusing. Uh, sometimes they realize this, sometimes not but they focused on one particular multiple intelligence. So Piaget's model focused on uh, intellectual IQ. Uh, Dan Goldman's model focuses on emotional intelligence. Jane Levenger focuses on self-intelligence, self-organizing intelligence. Um, Robert Keegan focuses on, on um, orders of consciousness and, and, and its development. And so each of them have also developed metrics or testing procedures that allow us to um, go to any population we want and um, administer these tests and determine at uh, approximately their, their general level of development. And, of course, we, we hold all of this lightly because these are just models. They're, they're just maps. Now, we all know that the map is not the territory, but at the same time, you don't want to have a screwed-up map, um, which is what most of our fragmented, partial, broken maps are. So if you look at the evidence if you, of, of all of these psychological models as they continue testing people, then you see that the second tier or integral levels of development, if you go back 30 years or so, less than 0.5% of the population on any of these tests scored an integral. And now the average score on all of these tests is around 5%. So that's just hard evidence on 
from psychological developmental studies, and these have been done in several different cultures around the world, that show us an indication that there's a growth in consciousness and a transformation in consciousness that uh, is, is presently occurring. And then, of course, there are simply, you can simply, in a sense, track the news and notice that where 50 years ago, uh, if a nation had a problem, uh, the problem generally was confined to that nation. And it's something that its government could do to fix the problem. And the government either fixed it or didn't fix it. And citizens were either happy or unhappy. Increasingly, problems have moved away from being at a national level. So global warming, for example, if one nation cuts back on all of its carbon dioxide production, that's not going to affect global warming. Literally, virtually every country in the world now has to cut back on its carbon emissions, or it's the global problem is, is not going to change. And likewise with global financial systems and, and the problems that we face there, one nation can do anything at once, and it's not going to solve the problem. This is now a transnational, global situation. And all of these global problems are relatively new. And that's showing us that evolution itself, both in its exteriors, is continuing to enter global dimensions, but also on its interiors. And um, in order to solve the problems on the exterior, global exterior problems, we need interior global thinking. And so it's just a combination of actual hard test data and then just looking at the world situation in general and uh, watching the news, if you will, and tracking uh, changes as they occur. And the trends seem fairly obvious when you do that. Thank you, Pam. Um, here is another question coming from Craig. How does technology such as alpha brainwave inducement figure into the transformation of education? Well, one of the interesting things is that um, with the rise of modern technology, which is something that, of course, the early sages and, and, and the pre-modern saints and sages, for all of their otherwise brilliance, uh, did not have access to. And this, so this is something new that any sort of um, more integrated and, and systemic spirituality would want to take into account. But it's been discovered, for example, that the traditional states of consciousness, which are given by most of the traditions as states of consciousness, such as waking, dreaming, deep sleep, uh, witnessing and non-dual consciousness. And all human beings are born with these five major states of consciousness available to them. 
modern science has discovered, certainly for the first three, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, that there are specific brainwave patterns that go with each of those states. So the typical waking state, the relaxed waking state, has an alpha pattern, uh, which means the number of hertz or, or um, cycles uh, per second that the brain is um, experiencing. And more higher activity waking thought, including states of anxiety and panic and fear, tend to be beta state of, of, of brain state functioning. As an individual starts to go to sleep and moves into the um, dreaming state, the brainwave pattern tends to be theta. And theta is a, is a profoundly relaxed uh, state of, of awareness. And it also um, is not something that is experienced just in the dream state. It's experienced in states of creativity and in states of what's called super learning. It, the brain tends to absorb information very, very quickly in the theta state. And then as, as you continue sleeping, you get into very, very long, slow waves called delta. And delta waves are um, experienced in deep, dreamless, formless sleep. And according to the traditions, what's also being experienced in, in deep, formless sleep is pure witnessing, pure consciousness without an object. And so... In addition to the discovery that there are different brain wave patterns that are correspond to these consciousness states, brain wave states in the upper right are correlated with consciousness states in the upper left, that there are ways to induce brain states very, very quickly. One is by using binaural beat technology, which will um, play one beat in one ear and a different beat in the other ear. So if you play 100 cycles a, a second in one ear and 110 cycles in the other, the brain, in order to make sense of that, will itself start beating at the average, which in this case would be five hertz, which would be a theta state. And so simply by using this binaural beat technology, you can induce beta states, alpha states, theta states, and, and in many cases, delta states. And it only takes a few minutes to put a person into that brain state. And when they're in that brain state, they experience the corresponding consciousness state. And so in just a matter of minutes, individuals can be put into deep theta or even deep witnessing consciousness, which takes, if you're doing just plain meditation, takes an average sometimes of two or three years in order to learn and now can be induced in um 95% of the people 
within uh, just a matter of minutes. So many um, what's referred to as integral transformative practices, many spiritual practices that train body, mind, soul, and spirit in self and culture and nature, all simultaneously, uh, have started using things like binaural beat technology in addition to regular meditation um, to help individuals reach meditative states in a much, much quicker fashion. And we're continuing to learn more and more about how to do that in more sophisticated ways. Plus, people like Richie Davidson at West Wisconsin are making more and more discoveries about what different types of meditation do. And the Dalai Lama has made the entire um, population of monks from Tibet available for this research. And so one of the things they've discovered, for example, is that when long-term monks uh, do compassion meditation, then the brain produces gamma brainwave patterns. And you can induce gamma using binaural beat or also something called transcranial electrical stimulation. And so you can, in a matter of minutes, get the brain and subsequently consciousness into profound states of compassion, where previously, again, it could take months or even years to learn it just working with consciousness alone. So we think that there's a role to be played with these new brain-mind technologies. And as discoveries continue to be made in that field, um, we're seeing it being applied to things like um, addiction recovery, where it has dramatic impact, particularly as people are going through withdrawal, and they can instead be put into states of deep relaxation with with this brainwave technology and um, makes it much, much easier to get through. And it also shows the addict something that they thought they would never, ever be able to achieve again, and that's near ecstatic states of consciousness. That's why they were doing drugs in the first place, was to get a hit of ecstatic being. It was, in a sense, a, um, a mistaken spiritual outlet, um, correct drive, wrong means. But once they find that they can induce those states without drugs, then um, it, their future becomes much, much more optimistic, and they become much more um, positively oriented towards the future and their own and their own uh, capacities in the future. So we continue to see important roles for brain-mind technology in everything from from that uh, to education itself. Um, where, as we learn particularly about states of super learning that um, theta states will put individuals into, there's no reason that uh, classrooms couldn't on occasion use binaural beat technology to put their students into a theta state for a particular class. 
and it would make their learning up to 10 times more efficient. So um, we're still right at the at the um, cutting edge of where this technology is going to take us, but there are a lot of very promising uh, options available. Well, uh, you're not talking about, for instance, the impact of these uh, treatments on um, on, on drugs, um, um, people dealing with drugs issues, of course. But here's another question from Owen Oakley. He says, you said something along the lines of focus on just the exterior makes it hard to see hope in the universe and beauty and creativity and goodness are reduced to luck. If you believe in this, clinical depression is just a step away. Well, talk about that. He says, could you speak a little more about how an excessive favoring or repression of any given quadrant both individually and culturally, results in suffering or pathology? Sure. Um, what we um, have learned about these quadrants is they actually represent perspectives that an individual can take on reality. So um, just to remind people, first person means the person who is speaking. Second person means the person who is being spoken to. And third person means the person or thing that's being spoken about. And there are also fourth person and fifth person and so on, perspectives. And each of these quadrants are not just some uh, theoretical uh, hypothesis. They're actually composed of different perspectives that human beings can take. So in the upper left quadrant, for example, the interior of the individual or the eye space is marked by a first-person perspective. The lower left quadrant or the we space, the cultural space, is marked by an I and a you or a thou becoming a we. And, of course, thou is, is or you is, is a second-person perspective. And in the right-hand quadrants are both objective uh, quadrants. The upper right is, is, is individual or singular, and the lower right is collective or plural. And so they are both um, specialized in third-person perspective. And one of the reasons that modern science didn't arise until... Um, the rise of the rational stage of development with the Renaissance and, and the Enlightenment is that the rational stage is the first stage that an individual can take a third-person perspective. And so we can start to get these objective, modern, uh, scientific approaches to things. Unfortunately, of course, science, as Jürgen Habermas put it, um, colonized the life world. Uh, in other words, scientific materialism overtook art and aesthetics and ethics and, in a sense, pronounced them non-existent or mere epiphenomena or even illusions. And they weren't real because, because they weren't third-person objective phenomena. But that's the point. Humans have these different perspectives, and they're perspectives that are genuine perspectives of and by the universe. They're actually something the universe is doing. It's taking a first-person perspective, or it's taking a second-person perspective, 
or it's taking a third-person perspective. And every time it does that, it gets a different view of reality. Now, if you take just one of those views and call it real and take all the others and call them unreal, then you're actually repressing aspects of the universe, aspects of the real world you are denying. And yet those aspects continue to arise. They continue to exist. They continue to impact you moment to moment. And so if moment to moment all of these perspectives are impacting you and you're only allowing one of them to be real and you're actively denying reality to all the others, then that's a very, very fractured and broken worldview. And that's what I meant when I, being a little bit facetious, said that uh, clinical depression was the next step. And all I meant by that is that whenever you cut out huge chunks of reality and deny their existence when they're really real and they're continuing to arise, and more importantly, they're continuing to have an impact on you. They're actually affecting you. But if you don't know that... If you deny that, then you're going to get blindsided by them. And they're going to actually be having an impact that you don't know about. And so you don't take it into account. And so that's the problem. As many scientists themselves see it with the standard neo-Darwinian view of, of evolution. Is that by focusing just on third person objective exteriors, it's leading, out, it's leading out other perspectives that are also part of the picture and actually are, have a part to play in the evolutionary process. So when Eric Yachts, for example, called evolution self-organization through self-transcendence, he was using interior qualities and perspectives in order to explain the novelty that shows up in evolution in the exterior material forms. Alfred North Whitehead said that there were three ultimate categories to reality. One was the many, one was the one, and the third was the creative advance into novelty. And so creativity and novelty are made an intrinsic part of the universe. Not just randomness, not just chance, and not just natural selection, but creativity, self-transcendence, self-organization. Stuart Kaufman of the Santa Fe Institute has maintained that in addition to the four physical forces, strong, weak, nuclear, uh, um, electromagnetic, and gravitational, there's a fifth force in the universe that he refers to as self-organization. And, of course, philosophers of old refer to it as eros. But these, this is what happens when you include all of the perspectives that are actually arising. And you don't pathologically cut out 
all of them except the one that you happen to believe is real. That does lead to pathology because it's also going to cut out aspects of your own psyche, aspects of your own being that are real and that are arising and that you are denying. And virtually any psychotherapeutic model in existence will define the denial of some aspect of your own being as psychopathology, generally known as repression or dissociation. And that's what cutting out the other quadrants amounts to. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what it is. And so that's why I was only partially kidding when I said it, it, it could lead to clinical depression. Thank you, Ken. Here is a question from Lois. Um, it's, um, the question is, is the 5% at the integral level spread equally around the world, or is, there, is that concentrated in, in, in one or more places? That, um, what we're finding is that um, it's showing up in all parts of the world, but um, because these levels of development are like Maslow's uh, needs hierarchy, which is you sort of have to satisfy the earlier levels and needs, and then higher needs will emerge. So if you're starving and you need food, it's hard to work on you know your belongingness needs or your self-actualization needs. You need to find food, <clears throat> and so. Um, the same happens with developing countries that are, are having a hard time, uh, in many cases through no fault of their own, but just the sort of wicked ways of the world market, um, are having a hard time meeting earlier needs, then they tend to have a harder time getting to higher needs and higher levels. And so the largest percentage of individuals at second tier are in North America, Canada, uh, Europe, and um, some parts of, of uh, Asia. And then the, uh, the rest of the world tends to, to be lagging on average about a stage or so. But um, the... Individuals that propose these models have been very careful to test the models in as many different cultures as they possibly can. Um, Lawrence Kohlberg's model of moral development, for example, uh, it doesn't cover all of moral development. But for the parts it does cover, it's been tested now in close to 40 cultures. And there are no major exceptions that have been found to the stages of, of, of his model. Uh, and so that allows us to, again, holding the data lightly, um, to make these kinds of statements that, that apply uh, cross-culturally. Yeah, if we now talk about this 5%, um, is there a percentage that we need for the whole world to change? <clears throat> well, um, in many ways, when the world moved from modern to postmodern and moved from, that is to say, a predominantly rational mode of knowing to a predominantly pluralistic mode of knowing. 
that was a um, a huge worldwide change in itself. And uh, of course, every level can uh, appear in um, healthy and moderate ways, or more extreme and dysfunctional ways. And in some ways, pluralism uh, became uh, extreme and dysfunctional. But be that as it may, the notion of uh, truth, for example, and the notion that any one culture has, you know, a lock on truth, and other cultures are merely lost in fantasy or um, lower levels of development that have no fundamental significance at all and are just primitive or barbaric. Those sort of notions just dropped out. And as a matter of fact, if anything, uh, Europe went from a position of sort of preeminence um, to being the preeminent bad guy as being the cause of much colonialism and uh, oppression and uh, and so on. And I think we have to be very careful about that um, in as much as, as Europe was also the first society to outlaw slavery and so on. Um, but the shift from, from rational, scientific, official philosophy to pluralistic, postmodern, cultural, creative, multicultural sensitivities was a profound shift. And we saw it in everything from the United Nations, where all of a sudden virtually every nation had an equal voice, um, to um, our entire educational system in the West started to emphasize the histories of other cultures and the importance of other cultures in world development and and got away from taking you know just the five or six major European countries that had um, were making discoveries in the quote new world and emphasized them and started giving us instead uh, the average day in the life of a tribesman in uh, the Zulu tribe in in uh, southern Africa, for example. And that became part of history, and not just the study of George Washington and John Adams and Abraham Lincoln. And, and that was a, a, a fairly worldwide change, and um, it was uh, profound enough in many ways. Now, the only problem... Um, pluralism it actually calls itself the integral culture, and it's very close to that. It doesn't want to marginalize anything. It doesn't want to exclude anything. It, w it wants to be inclusive as it can, but it denies universals of any sort and maintains really that all cultures are have their own relative truths and one culture can't criticize another. And the, the only problem with that is that the postmodernists themselves have a universal theory of knowledge that's maintained to be true for all people in all cultures at all times in all places. So this has been called a performative contradiction. They, they are 
allowing themselves truths that they deny to everybody else. And, and so that's contradictory. But they also dislike any worldview other than their own. And so they really believe that their worldview is superior in a world where nothing is supposed to be superior at all. So postmodernism hates modernism. It hates traditionalism. And it goes back and forth on tribalism. It also hates integralism. So it's not that inclusive. But in a sense, it does prepare the way for a more inclusive ground. And that happens when individuals actually move into the integral levels themselves. Um, and um, But the pluralistic stage is the highest of the first-tier stages. So that means it's the last stage that thinks that its view and its view only is correct. Um, but it still does believe that. And that has accompanied it as it has had this worldwide impact. And it changed uh, education in the Western world profoundly, certainly the humanities. It changed laws in many countries profoundly. All hate laws in the United States are the product of the pluralistic sensibility. Um, so, but with, with an integral stage, we'd actually have these other stages being actively included and not, not um, implicitly dismissed the way postmodernism does. Uh, so we've already seen, I mean, each of these five or so major transformation that humanity has gone through, uh, foraging and, and um, archaic and uh, magic and hunting and gathering and horticultural and um, mythic agrarian uh, uh, and mythic rational and modern pluralistic and postmodern, all of them had really profound worldwide changes. We just expect that the changes that integral will bring will be of a different order because all of the other transformations were all first tier. The transformation to integral will be the first time we've had a complete change in tiers. And so that's something we've never undergone before. And the, the results could be indeed quite profound. Um, some studies have indicated, for example, that a person at integral stages is about 10 times more efficient than a person at pluralistic or first tier. So if you can imagine a tipping point that's 10 times stronger than any previous world tipping point, you might get an idea of just how profound that integral global transformation might be. Now, uh, you know, all of this about tipping point and so on is speculative. But we have good reason to believe that that it's not altogether a crazy idea, and there's certainly historical evidence for it. And we do have direct evidence that um, increasing percentages of the population are moving into integral stages. So um, it's uh, just around the corner, uh, whatever it is that's coming.
And we're getting to a last question, and you may have a yeah a, a, a brief answer to that as we want okay, to my friend. respectfully deal with people's time. Um, here, that question is from Craftman asking, can we agree on something basic, basic that's common, such as optimization of the human condition that involves caring and sharing and not fear and hoarding? So I guess a, an attempt to even simplify uh, the corporate. <clears throat> well, I think that um, the evidence, anyway, suggests that individuals at um, different stages of development have different values. And so we can, um, for example, starting um, with, with the mythic uh, level of development, Love and belongingness become a value um, really for the first time in, in any widespread fashion. And so many of the world's great religions that arose during that period emphasized love and compassion and loving kindness. But you also have to realize that there are levels to the development of love that like most qualities. There's an egocentric version, which is, I just love myself. There's an ethnocentric version, which is, I love my family, or I love my tribe, or I love my nation, I love my group. There's a world-centric orientation, which is, I love all human beings, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And there's a cosmocentric or planet-centric, which is, I love all sentient beings. And so we can say love, but we also have to sort of specify, well, what, what degree of love are we, are, we, are we talking about? And incidentally, Carol Gilligan, who wrote the immensely influential In a Different Voice, which talked about the different ways that men and women reason, she made two major points in that book, only one of which was actually um, got a lot of attention. And that is that Men and women tend to think differently. Men tend to think in terms of autonomy, rights, ranking, and hierarchy. And women don't think in terms of hierarchy or ranking. They think in terms of care and relationship and responsibility. And, and the feminists immediately picked up that men are the cause of all hierarchies, and since all hierarchies are bad, men are the cause of all societal uh, oppression. But the second point that Carol Gilgan made was that both men and women develop through four hierarchical stages of development. The four hierarchical stages for women, she called selfish, which is egocentric, and then care, where you begin to be able to care for somebody other than yourself. That's, of course, ethnocentric. And then what she called universal care, which is caring for all humans. That, of course, is world-centric. And then what she called an integrated level, which combines both masculine and feminine modes of thinking. So women's non-hierarchical thinking itself develops through four hierarchical stages. And when the feminists cut out hierarchy altogether, they cut out growth for women. 
and it was a disaster. And so they've never quite been able to get themselves out of that particular hole. But looking, using more integral thinking, uh, we can develop more integral forms of feminism and include the good aspects of hierarchy as well as rejecting the bad aspects. Um, so in terms of, can't we just say something like, you know, they're just a nice set of values that, that everybody should pull for. Um, in a certain sense, that's right. But the values that are uh, going to have the most depth and the most inclusiveness and the most care and the most compassion and the most love are going to be those values that come from those higher stages of development that we've been talking about. Thank you, Ken. Thank you uh, for all your thoughts and your wisdom and, and insights. Um, I want to thank all the participants and also want to point to the fact that this is just the introduction to something that, of course, goes much deeper in the course that is going to start in, um, in about two weeks, when uh, Ken and his team uh, are going to talk uh, in six subsequent ses sessions um, you know, about deeper levels of integral thinking. And uh, to give you an idea what that is all about, uh, I would encourage you to go to the website of um, the Optimist, uh, and that's theoptimist.com, where you can see just right on the homepage uh, if the course is announced. And if you go to the webpage, you can see in detail what the course is going to um, address. Um, just a reminder, this is a, a unique way for you to get more familiar with uh, integral thinking. It's definitely a way for, uh, yeah, for to better understand the world that we're living in, which sometimes seems such a crazy place. And, you know, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to try to make sense and can build his thinking and his integral theory is very helpful with that. So I would encourage all of you to seriously consider to be part of the uh, ongoing sessions. Uh, once again, check that out uh, at theoptimist.com. Um, meanwhile, if you want to sort of reflect on what you just learned today, we will be sending a recorded version of this session to you in the days ahead. You will see that in your email. Uh, 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 together with a further announcement uh, about the uh, course that is to start uh, on May 22nd. Sorry, yes, May 22nd, that is correct. Um, well, then I thank uh, Jim Garrison and Ubiquiti University for our great collaboration, and uh, once again, of course, to Ken Wilbur and Ali Akhalin and Plenfus for today. Thank you uh, for being with us, and I hope you have a very good rest of your day.